If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to do a special message today since it's our communion service. And if I'm not mistaken, we haven't had uh, the Lord's Supper since February. So I am delighted to be able to share in the Lord's Supper with you today and trusting and believing that Christ is going to be exalted and that God will will be honored in this place. So I've chosen a special text, and that is in Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll be picking up in verse 11. Okay, so I want to start with a question. Did you know that Jesus and the gospel are central throughout the whole of the Bible? That's really what it's all about. The Bible is about Jesus. Jesus said on a couple of occasions that the whole of the scriptures actually testified of him. They pointed to him. I know that uh, we live in a time where we make the Bible very much about ourselves. I think too much so. I think that we certainly benefit from the Bible. We should look to the Word of God to be shaped and know how to live. But really, when we approach the Bible, what we want to know is what does it say about God? What does it say about Jesus Christ? Because the Bible is indeed about Him. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus said that these scriptures testify of me, and he expounded through Moses and the prophets there on the road to Emmaus and said that all of this was concerning him. And so we look to the scriptures, we look to Christ. Now, not every verse is literally talking about Jesus, and we know this. That's obvious. That's a given, right? But it all points to him in one way or another. Christ can be found. There is this scarlet cord that we sometimes refer to that is woven throughout the whole Bible where you can find Christ in one way or another. And not least of this, uh, not least of which would be the Old Testament sacrificial system. So when you hear about the laws given in the Old Testament and how they would sacrifice animals in the temple to God, that would truly be a picture of Jesus Christ. For John the Baptist said when Jesus came onto the scene, behold, what? the Lamb of God, who took away, takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus was typified back then. That was a picture or an illustration of the saving, redeeming work of Jesus Christ all the way back in the Old Testament. And so we see that through and through. And so those things pointed to Christ. Those things were, the Bible says, a shadow of what was to come. It wasn't the substance. Christ is the fulfillment of all of those things. He is the perfection of all of those things. He is the completion of all of those things. Those things were just a shadow pointing to him. You understand that, right? You know, my wife, for instance, when I I see her and her shadow, I don't say, hey, that's a nice shadow you got there. Right? I wouldn't do that, right? That would be weird, okay? No, my wife is the substance, okay? And she is what I adore. She is who I am looking at. And so people could do this with the Old Testament. People can't get past the old things. People couldn't move past the shadow and the typology, so to speak. And so that's the core idea of Hebrews. Christ is the fulfillment of all things, the old covenant, and he has instituted a new and greater covenant, and there is no going back. There's no going back. 
Jesus has completed it. Jesus has finished it, and there's no going back. Now, this was a problem because there were Jews who were coming out of that system of worship, and as they began to walk with Jesus, they were being persecuted. They were having all kinds of difficulties, and they thought, you know, I don't know, man. I didn't sign up for this. This doesn't seem like God's blessing, so I'm going to go back. And they wanted to go back to the old way of doing it. They wanted to go back to the old sacrificial system. So the writer of Hebrews is saying you cannot go back. There's nothing to go back to. Jesus is the way now. He is the fulfillment of all of those things. And he is truly better. He has rendered obsolete the old covenant. And so now he is the way to God. Hebrews 2.3, it says this, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He is the great salvation that God has provided. And if we look for it in some other place, we will not escape the wrath of God. For this is the way. This is the way that God has provided for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? So what we have here before us in the book of Hebrews is a treatise on the superiority of Christ. That's why I love this book. From cover to cover, that's really what we have here. In this book, it is Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior. Jesus is supreme. And if you walk through the pages of Hebrews, you will see it really in this sequential order right here. He is the supreme revelation of God in chapter 1. God who in past times spoke through the fathers and the prophets has now in these days spoken to us by whom? Jesus Christ. He is the final and ultimate authority through whom God has spoken. And then it goes on to say that Jesus is greater than the angels that he is a greater high priest, that he is from a greater priesthood, and that he offers a greater priestly service, and that he has offered a greater sacrifice, he initiated a greater covenant, he is a greater mediator who serves in a greater heavenly sanctuary. Notice a the theme here? Jesus is greater in every single way. And so that brings us to our text in chapter 10, and I've titled this message, Jesus is greater, four reasons why that is good news for us. Jesus is greater, four reasons why that is good news for us. And indeed it is good news. So we're going to pick up in verse 11. And the first point here is that because Jesus is greater, we have a once and for all forgiveness. For my note takers out there, because Jesus is greater... We have a once and for all forgiveness. Verse 11, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So now the writer of Hebrews is referencing the, the old priesthood. And these guys, they worked tirelessly in the temple day after day, month after month, year after year. It never ended the work of the priesthood. It was exhausting. And they had to offer sacrifices for sin over and over and over from day to night, day after day. It was, it was a bloody mess. And it never ceased. And I think there was a picture there. What the lesson intended to be taught was the severity of sin and the cost of sin, and how it's an unceasing sacrifice that has to happen because sin is so pervasive and it is never ceasing, and so sacrifice never ceased. The cost of sin was so great. But we're told here in verse 11, not only did they, they work daily in the temple and offer sacrifices repeatedly, but frankly, these sacrifices, 
They didn't even remove sin. In verse 11 there it says, which can never take away sins. The sins weren't truly washed away. They weren't truly removed. The language the Bible uses is that those sins were just covered over. God's wrath was appeased for a time, but I mean, how long is it how long would it take between the time that you go and you have that sacrifice till the time that you sin again? And now you're back on the hook again, right? And that's a, that's a terrible place to be. And that's what God has saved us out of, even that system of works. Well, verse 12, it says, But this man, this man after he had offered one sacrifice for the sins forever. How many sacrifices? One sacrifice. For how long? Forever. Forever. Sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 13, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. So notice here, and this is significant. He says, but this man, what man? The man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. Truly human. You've heard me talk about this before and you'll hear me talk about it again because it is so fundamental. It is so foundational to our faith throughout church history. Christ was indeed truly man and yet simultaneously truly God in every sense of those words. And he had to be truly human, the Bible tells us, so that he could be a qualified representative on our behalf. If he was going to die in our stead, he had to be truly human. You know, some people try to say weird things like Jesus was a phantom being. That where he walked, you couldn't see footprints on the ground. But that's absolutely false, because if that were the case, there would be no shedding of blood. There would be no broken body. What we celebrate at the Lord's table, that would not have even truly happened. Jesus was truly human, and he was tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. And we're told for that reason that he is a he is a faithful and sympathetic high priest, truly man, and he was truly an acceptable sacrifice unto the Father in our stead. Now, we're told here that this was a once-offered sacrifice. It was offered one time. Now, this speaks to the quality of the sacrifice, the worth of the sacrifice, because he was at the same time indeed God in the flesh. Son of God. He had to be. If he weren't, he could not have been sinless. There's only one sinless being that ever walked this earth, and that was our Lord Jesus Christ. Truly man, truly God. And his sacrifice was of infinite worth. People have asked the question, how could it be that for a man to, to hang on a cross for a, for a few hours, that that could wash away the sin of all of those who would believe on him for generations and generations? How can that be? Because of the worth of that sacrifice. It was God's only Son, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. That's what we have here. That's what he is speaking of. So you had this sacrifice, this sacrificial system in the Old Covenant that was over and over, day after day, that never really took away sin, only covered it for a time. But then you have the man, Christ Jesus, Son of God in the flesh, who died one time for sin for how long? Forever. Forever. And notice that it says that once he did this, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down. There was nothing more to be done. 
It was accomplished. He finished the work of salvation once and for all. He was buried. He rose again from the grave. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, for it is done. We're told that there will come a day when he rises from that seat in judgment against the Christ-rejecting world. But until that time, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father as our heavenly mediator, our heavenly intercessor. That is, that he is praying for us in this very moment. Did you know that? Is that amazing? That the Son of God is praying for us as we speak next to the Father. In Hebrews chapter 7, it tells us this. It says in verse 23, Also there were many priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Let me break this down. There were so many priests in the Old Testament because they would die. They would retire. And then another generation of priests would, would uh, be brought up to take their place. But Jesus lives forever. He will never die. He reigns forevermore at the right hand of the Father, and He is that perfect priest who ever lives to intercede on our behalf. And that's what it says right here in verse, uh, continue on in verse 25. Therefore, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus ever lives to intercede on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. Notice this phrase that He saves to the uttermost. That is our Savior. He has saved from the guttermost to the uttermost. Amen? Yes. Hallelujah. He has reached down to the lowest places and brought us up and set our feet upon the rock. And now He ever lives as a heavenly high priest seated at the right hand of the Father praying for us. Praise God. Praise Jesus. And we're told in verse 14 that by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. How many offerings? One offering. For how long? Forever. You know, by one offering we have been forgiven. That is past, present, and future. This kind of blows our mind a little bit, I think. I don't know how many of us really have grasped this. I, I doubt any of us, including myself. I mean, this is, this is glorious truth. When Jesus died upon the cross... And we have trusted Him for salvation. Our sin, past, present, and future, is gone. It's been washed away. He didn't, he didn't just cover over our sin. Our sin is washed completely. Past, present, future, forever. Let that sink in. Everything that you have done, everything that you're doing right now, and everything that you ever will do has already been washed away. It is washed away forever. We have been forgiven Brothers and sisters, if you have trusted Christ, you have been forgiven. Now, what I'm getting ready to say might sound a little shocking, and I'm even a little fearful to say it myself. The first time I ever heard this, it really tripped me out. And so I don't want to see everybody outside with a pitchfork rebellion waiting on me afterwards. We've been forgiven, past, present, and future. We don't have to keep asking for forgiveness. Did you know that? The Bible says that we ought to confess our sins. When we acknowledge that we have sinned, we don't deny it. We don't hide it. We don't ignore it. We don't lie about it. We can acknowledge it. And then what do we do? We turn from our sin. We repent of it. But we don't have to keep asking forgiveness because it's been forgiven. You have been forgiven. 
by one sacrifice for how long? Forever. And that's such a glorious thing because I don't know about you, but there have been seasons in my life where I feel like every time I approach God, my prayer starts with, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Now, just think about that on a, on a, a human level. If that, if that was what our relationship consisted of, every time I come to you, I have to start. Let me preface this with, I'm sorry. I mean, what does that say about the relationship? But when we approach God, we're forgiven. We are accepted in Christ. We are washed. We are cleansed. We are made new in Him forevermore. Is that not glorious news? Hallelujah, that's fantastic news. And this is what we need to remember when we approach the table. At the end of this service, when we partake together in the Lord's Supper, that's what this represents. Jesus' body was broken, His blood was shed, and it is a once and for all forgiveness that has been given to us, that has been afforded to us, that has been won for us. And so we recognize Jesus is greater, and for that reason, we have a once and for all forgiveness. Brings us to our second point. Because Jesus is greater, we have a better covenant with God. I'll explain what, what that means, but because Jesus is greater, we have a better covenant with God. Verse 15. It says, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. I love that verse. So notice there in verse 15, it says that the Holy Spirit witnesses to us. How does that happen? How does the Holy Spirit witness to us? It's here in the text. Through the Word of God. Through the written Word of God. The writer of Hebrews is referencing Jeremiah here. And he says that the Holy Spirit has witnessed to us before through the prophet Jeremiah. And what was it that Jeremiah was prophesying? And that was that God had a new plan. God was going to initiate a new and a better covenant with His people. Now, this, this word covenant is probably not something that we use very often, but it's something that we should understand. A marriage, that is a covenant. You are making a promise for life that you are going to be with that person, be faithful and loyal to that person, serve and protect that person, and that person alone forever. That's a covenant. This community right here, when we come to Jesus and Jesus calls us out of the world and, and into this body of believers right here. We are a covenant community. We belong to each other. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is serious. This is a family that was purchased and bought and brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are one in Him. Amen? This is a covenant community. And God had an agreement that's what the word can mean, agreement or arrangement or contract in the Old Testament. And that's what it was, that worship was going to happen a certain way, that seeking God's face and the sacrificial system and, and all that was bound up in that, that was the Old Covenant. But God had, a, had another plan. He had something greater in mind. That served His purpose for a time. There was much that God revealed about Himself in the Old Covenant. 
what we learn from the Old Covenant is how God takes sin so seriously and how God is indeed a God who will judge. And He is a God that we will have to reckon with. And so we understand the severity of this holy God. We at the same time in the Old Covenant see the graciousness and the mercy and the kindness of God. But in the New Covenant, it is fully realized in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. We truly understand the grace and the mercy that has been given to us at the cross, and we appreciate it because of all, all that we've learned of God in the Old Covenant. Same God. You understand? There's not a God of the Old and a God of the New. There's just so much that we know about God from the Old Covenant and so much more that is realized in Him in the New Covenant. And that is what the writer of Hebrews is telling us God had intended all along. So why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them out of the land to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is the text that the writer of Hebrews is referencing. And this is a promise in the Old Testament of a new covenant that God would bring. And there would come a time when we would, from our own hearts, love God with all that we have. That He would write His law in our hearts and on our minds. See, that's the difference, folks. The Old Covenant was a system of rules and regulations written on stone tablets delivered to the people from God through Moses to the people. And it was hard. It was rigorous. It was impossible to keep. And so every time that we would fail and fall short, the covenant said that we had to go to the priest and we had to offer sacrifice. And it was unceasing, never ending, day after day. It was exhausting. That was the old covenant. But out of that covenant would come the new. God had a plan. He was going to go from the law written on the stone tablets to the law that would be written on our hearts. And it would become a work of the Spirit in our lives as we are born of the Spirit and we are those who worship God in spirit and truth from the heart. It becomes a heart thing. It becomes a genuine relationship with Jesus. It's not about rules and regulations and rituals. It's about relation with Jesus Christ. That's the new covenant. And that's what God said he was going to do all the way back in Jeremiah. And he says, I love this verse, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God said, I distinctly remember forgetting that sin. Why do you keep bringing it up? Why can't you get over it? Why can't you forget it? I have. That is the new covenant. And this is the covenant that Jesus initiated, instituted by His blood. In Luke chapter 22, you can turn back to Hebrews, but I'll read this verse to you from Luke chapter 22. It's a text that I think we know well. Starting in verse 14, it says, But when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
verse 19, and then he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So Jesus said, with a fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. So many Passovers they had enjoyed together, but this one was going to be special. This was the night before Jesus was to be crucified. When they would celebrate Passover, they were looking back to their deliverance in Egypt. You remember what God told them? That they were to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, sacrifice it, and put the blood of that lamb on their door, and the angel of death would pass over that home. And that was a picture of Christ the Lamb of God. And so now Jesus said, I'm getting ready to fulfill this. And no longer will we be looking back to Egypt, but now we'll be looking back to what Christ did, the substance of those things, the fulfillment of those things when He was crucified, when His body was broken, and His blood was shed for you and for I for the forgiveness of sins once and for all. And He said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of Me. And that's why we gather at the table and that's why we partake of, partake of the cup and the bread in remembrance of Him, the institution of the new covenant. What we now enjoy in Christ, the freedom that we have, the love that we express, the, the unity that we share, the law that has been written on our hearts, the Spirit of God who lives within us, the God who has said that I will remember their sins no more. That is the new covenant, and it has been purchased for us in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he said that you will do this in remembrance of me. Paul adds to that in 1 Corinthians that as often as we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. And so that's what we remember when we come to the table. Verse 18 there in Hebrews says, Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Remission of what? Well, he's pointing back to verse 17 when it says, Their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And so where there is forgiveness of sin and lawless deeds, then there no longer remains a need for an offering. It's been washed away, folks. Once and for all at the cross, there's no need for further sacrifice. It has been finished. There no longer remains a need for sin offerings. If your sin has been removed once and for all, there is no more need of sacrifice. This is good news for us who are in Christ. You know, think about the Jewish people. What about them? You know, their temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And they're still in this old covenant system. So how do they appease God? How do they atone for their sin? Well, they can't. They can't. So what do they do? They still have a need for sacrifice. But we don't as Christians. But you know the problem is for Christians so often we live like we need more sacrifice. We do. We are on this, this hamster wheel of thinking we've got to do more. We've got to live better. There has to be another offering that I can make. Maybe if I will just condemn myself or guilt myself or beat myself or change this or change that or live forever in a place of regret. But no, no, no. We are not to live that way. We don't have to live that way. We don't have to suffer or make up for past mistakes or past regrets. That has been washed away. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, I love this. It says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, 
having forgiven you all your trespasses. How many? All our trespasses. Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So this is a, this is a picture here. So we know the story that there was something nailed above Jesus' head on that cross, and it said the King of the Jews in a few different languages, right? Well, take that same picture. That's what I think he's building on here. And, and instead of that, what's actually nailed to that cross is our record of debt. What the law says that we are to fulfill perfectly and we have failed to fulfill and the debt that we must now pay for our sin in full is there on that, on that note, on that receipt. And nailed above Jesus' head, it is stamped and it says paid in full. Paid in full at the cross. All that we have done, all of our failures, all of our sin, all of our mistakes, all of our regret, nailed to the cross, paid in full. Everything has been washed away, having been nailed to the cross. No sin remains. No sacrifice is needed. Nothing stands between us and the Father now. You know, some people will say things like, you don't know what I've done. Have you ever heard that before? That all sounds great, what you're saying, but you don't know what I have done. And what I would say to that is, you don't know what Jesus has done. You don't know the surpassing worth of the sacrifice of the Son of God. You don't know how great the cross is. When people think God can't love me because of who I am and how I am and what I've done or what I continue to do, you fail to realize just how glorious the cross is and how big the cross is and what the worth of that sacrifice on that cross. So we have a new covenant now. We have a new covenant because of what Christ has done for us. We have a new relationship, a new contract, a new agreement, if you will. Praise God for that. Remember that when we come to the table. All right, third point. Because Jesus is greater... We have direct access to God. Because Jesus is greater, we have direct access to God. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us, through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Notice this, therefore. What is it referring back to? Referring back to the fact that because there is no sin or need of a sin offering, it's been, it's been paid in full. Sin has been washed, no need for an offering, therefore. And then, because we have a heavenly high priest, because we have a heavenly high priest who makes us acceptable to God, so our sins are washed away, there's no need for offering. Jesus is in the heavenlies as our great high priest who makes us acceptable before God. We're told we can enter into the holiest. We can enter into God's presence. We can go before the Father, beloved. We can go into God's presence. Now this is a reference to the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies. There was the temple precinct. And there were the, the outer walls where only some people were allowed to go into. 
But then there was a, another space, there was another wall that yet still only a few people were able to go into. So it became more and more exclusive as you went farther into the center of this temple precinct. But then you came into where the holiest place was and you would enter into this room and then there would be this curtain, this very thick, very tall curtain. There was only one person allowed to go into that room and that was the high priest one time a year to offer sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the nation. And that is where God said His manifest presence would appear. He would appear there before the high priest once a year to receive the sacrifice made on behalf of the people. Nobody could come into the presence of God. And even for this priest to come into the presence of God was a terrifying thing, a totally frightening thing, for he was a sinful man himself. And he had to go through all kinds of rituals and rites just to cleanse himself before he could come into the presence of God. But we're told that now we can come a new way. We're able to enter into the holiest place. And it's not through priest, it's not through the blood of animals, but by the blood of Jesus, we're told here. We are able to come into the holiest place, into the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It says here that we do so through the veil, which is His flesh. Now this is a reference to the veil that was there in the temple, in the holy place. This uh, veil was a cloth veil that was about three and a half inches thick, and it was very high. And we're told that when Jesus was on the cross and the whole earth went dark, what happened there in that temple? The veil was torn, and we're told that it was torn from the top to the bottom. That's very significant, as if God was tearing it apart and saying, access has now been granted to all who come through my son Jesus. Nobody else has to go to God on your behalf. We have direct access into the holiest place. Not one time of year, not one time a year, but always and forever. We can go straight to the throne of God and we can come boldly into His presence by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that there is no fear in perfect love. Perfect love has cast out all fear. We have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. The veil has been torn. Access to the Father has been granted to us. So verse 22, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So this is the, the exhortation. In light of all that has been said, Jesus is greater He's a greater high priest serving in a greater heavenly temple. And because his body has been broken and because the veil has been torn, we now have access into the Father's presence. So let us, let us draw near the nearness of God. This was radical. This was revolutionary that we can draw near to God that we don't have to go to somebody else to go to God, that we ourselves can go into the presence of God even though we are those who do struggle. We still sin. We're not perfect in this life. Yet we can now come into the Father's presence, yes, because of the blood of His Son. And so let us do so. Let us draw near to God 
with a true heart and full assurance of faith, it says. This is with sincerity and security. We can come into God's presence with sincerity of heart. We come in love. We come in devotion. We come in desperation. We come with confidence. We come securely because of the way that has been made for us in Christ. We're told with hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. This is inner purity. We're able to come with inner purity because our hearts and our conscience have indeed been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. And our bodies have been washed. This is an outward conformity to our Savior. So we have confidence. We have security. We have purity inwardly and outwardly in Christ. And praise God when we come to the table. Praise God for the access that has been won by our champion, Jesus Christ. When we come to the table, that's what we remember that we have access directly to the throne of God because of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? And this brings us to our last and final point. Point number four. Because Jesus is greater, we have a deeper fellowship with one another. Because Jesus is greater, we have a deeper fellowship with one another. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So we're told to hold fast. Hold fast. That is to cling to with an unwavering resolve. And what is it that we're to cling to? The confession of our hope. That is the profession of our faith and our expectancy in Christ. That is ours, brothers and sisters, and it has been delivered to us by the Son through His finished work on the cross. And it's not something that we just disregard. It's not something that we just go back to the old life. I'm going to go back to the old covenant, or I'm going to go back to my old life. No, cling to what Christ has won for you. Cling to your profession, your confession of hope in Him. And why should we have this kind of commitment? Why should we have this kind of trust? for He who promised is faithful. Amen? We talked about that last week. We talked about hope. And what is the basis for our hope? It's the faithfulness of God. God has kept all His promises and will continue to do so. And so we have complete and total confidence in Him because He is faithful. He who promised is faithful. So what then? The writer says, let us consider one another. God is faithful. There's no question about that. He's never going to let us down. Paul says, what I have entrusted to him, I know that he is able to keep until that day. But are we faithful to one another? Are we going to cling to one another? Are we going to serve and to love and bless and support one another? We're told that we ought to stir one another up. That literally is to provoke or instigate. And I, I love that. You know, when we think about provocation or to instigate, what do we think usually? We're thinking fighting, contentiousness, right? But we're actually told we're supposed to instigate love. We're supposed to provoke one another unto love and good works. Love. To love God and to love each other. We're to be encouraging one another along in this as we demonstrate it, as we walk in it, as we challenge and admonish each other to get in the game and to good works, to serve God and to serve each other. We are to 
consider one another. No longer considering ourselves only, but we're to look out for each other, right? And we're to encourage one another, provoke one another to love and good works. Verse 25 it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. So this is a negative command. What not to do? What are we not to do? We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We are to be together, folks. We need each other. Christ has made us a family of believers. This is such a special reality that we have such a gift from God the fellowship of the saints we're not to disregard this or treat it as though it is of no worth or value we are to cherish this and to cherish one another for we need each other we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together you know the Lord's day especially what a special day this is we gather to remember the resurrection of our Lord Jesus and you know I've said this many times before and I'll say it again and maybe you already know it's coming but the banana that leaves the bunch, what? Gets peeled. The banana that leaves the bunch gets peeled every time. We've got some new folks over here, so that's still funny to them. But that's just the truth. We need each other. Christ has given us each other. And we're not to forsake that. We're not to forsake the gathering together as is the manner of some. Some people had this attitude or this practice. I don't need to go to church. You know, you hear people say that. I don't need to go to church to be saved. But if you are in Christ and you know Him, you want to be in church because you want to be with your brothers and sisters and to worship Him corporately. And we're to be exhorting one another in this all the more, all the more as we see the day approaching. As we see the day approaching. You know, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, said, there's two days on my calendar. This day and that day, the day, the great day of the Lord. And so we're to be living like that. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25 that we're supposed to live as servants who are watchful. We're looking for the return of our Lord and Savior. We are to be servants who are busy while He is away, serving and investing in His, in His kingdom. We are to be servants who are living as though His return could be at any moment in time. We are servants who are ready. And what better way to live like that than in community? As we are together as a family of brothers and sisters who are encouraging and provoking one another to love and good works and to be ready for our Lord's return. That's why we need each other, folks. Bless you, Lord Jesus. We worship you. Thank you for your blood that was poured out. Thank you for the bloodshed that did run down that cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died for us. Thank you for the new covenant that is in your blood. Thank you that we've been washed once and for all. No more need for sacrifice. No more need for offering. All our sins have been forgiven and forgotten. And we live in the light of that freedom, of that forgiveness, of that love, that amazing grace. We praise You, Jesus. Thank You. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.